welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our loved radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. But most importantly, CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. And I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. And this is, of course, the Green Majority where we talk about environmental news and whatnot. And uh, Stefan is going to interview the illustrious Tim Nash, the sustainable economist himself, later in the broadcast, as well as Michael Polanyi of the Toronto Environmental Alliance, also known as T, about what are you going to be talking about? The Toronto Office of Recovery and Rebuild and the report that they released in regards to trying to push Toronto into the, I'm going to say 21st century uh, as a response to COVID uh, and the you know, benefits and, and failings of that report. Hurricane Iota landed in Central America on November 17th wrecking new death and havoc just days after Hurricane Eta hit the exact same place. Such storms increase the spread of COVID-19 as well as other diseases like cholera and yellow fever. Hurricane Eta had already caused severe and long-lasting damage to Nicaragua, Honduras, and Guatemala, and now a second major storm, what the Nicaraguan government is calling the strongest hurricane to ever hit the country, has ripped through the same region only a few days later. More and more of these storms have been rapidly intensifying before hitting land in recent years, and the Associated Press reports that Iota is the ninth storm to rapidly intensify this season, which climate scientists have predicted would be a result of global warming. Iota is now the 30th named storm for a season that had already broken that record with the previous hurricane, Theta. It is also the latest Category 5 storm in any year on record, breaking the former record from 1932. Horrendously, these storms are not just worsened by climate change, they're also worsened by efforts to mitigate climate change, such as when big projects like hydroelectric dams flood rivers and contaminate local water supplies. Iota slowed down and became a tropical depression as it moved over to Guatemala, and Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamate is quoted by Democracy Now! as saying on the 16th of November, Every time there's a natural disaster as a result of climate change, we acquire debt and we have come out to knock on the doors of the generous banks and multinational organizations that give us higher financing to achieve a reconstruction. This has brought a vicious cycle where we get into debt, we reconstruct, it gets destroyed, we get into debt, we rebuild, and it gets destroyed again. Finally, as Nick Terse points out uh, on in Tom Dispatch, the, quote, almost unimaginable numbers of people who have been uprooted from their homes as a result of a series of wars, he argues, was sparked by America's response to 9-11, pale in comparison with the numbers of people who are going to be displaced by climate change. Just very quickly, I want to highlight the point brought up by the Guatemalan president about debt cycles, uh, because this is going to be an unbelievably important issue, not just for the macro scale of countries, but also for the human scale of individuals. And perhaps because perhaps the most pernicious impacts of climate change will be its reinforcement of unequal wealth distribution. Countries with money will be able to protect themselves better from the impacts and therefore will become richer in comparison to those who cannot. But also internally within countries, we will see and are honestly already beginning to see 
rich uh, rich people being able to afford to live in places where their wealth can continue to increase, and poor folks will be the ones to live in you know uninsured houses on floodplains or fire prone areas, and this is only going to get worse as this continues. And so that those who have little will be bound to keep losing it, and those who have plenty will be able to hoard more and more. And it's this exact reason, for me at least, why a wealth tax and other forms of redistribution, both on international and national scale, is not just a good idea, but an imperative for climate justice. Uh, to you, Lauren. Yeah, um, kind of just riffing off of, off of what you were saying right there, um, sort of when I was hearing that uh, quote read um, from, uh, from the Guatemalan president, I was sort of reminded that this is a perfect example of why we desperately, desperately need to see loss and damage um, become uh, sort of like a strong pillar of international climate finance. Um, loss and damage payments are sort of We've talked about them on the show before, but basically this is a really poor summary of it, but it's like you've got climate finance as it pertains to adaptation, you've got climate finance as it pertains to mitigation, and then you've got loss and damage because there's the idea that no matter how much you mitigate, no matter how much you might adapt a community to to climate change, there will always be losses in the forms of life and livelihood and property and damages as well. Um, and the only way we can sort of proceed um, in an equitable and just way is to make sure that wealthy nations like Canada are are providing uh, loss and damage, um, I, I guess, reparations sort of to uh, uh, like kind of uh, small island developing nations and least developed countries in those nations uh, like Guatemala, who are most at risk when it comes to the impacts of natural disasters as a result of climate change. Um, so loss and damage is something that, again, we've seen asked for for, for a at least a decade now from the international community. Um, and up until this point, we've seen very little response from wealthy nations um, in, in terms of any willingness to, to sort of offer forth that payment. Um, Canada especially is a really bad uh, example here. Um, we have committed um, several billion dollars to international climate finance, but um, oftentimes we're falling really far short of our pledges. And when we are committing money on the international stage for climate finance, it's oftentimes in the form of loans, um, which like you said, David, only kind of, not David, Stefan, um, only kind of pushes these nations further into debt cycles. Um, so yeah, this is a really good example of a time when, when we need to see uh, international climate finance offered up in a way that doesn't further um, indebt these countries. Uh, so so we, we need to see grants instead of loans for the most part and transfer payments. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who Donald Trump would like to see kidnapped by armed thugs, recently took legal action to close Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline, which has brought Western Canadian oil products to Sarnia, Ontario through Wisconsin and Michigan since 1953. Global News notes that Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has said that this is part of a continued conspiracy to landlock Canadian energy. Well, they said effort, not conspiracy. But uh, Kennedy stated, quote, it is the single largest supply of gasoline ultimately in southern Ontario for aviation, fuel for aviation fuel for the Detroit airport, for heating fuel in northern Michigan, for the refineries in northern Ohio that fuel much of the Midwest U.S. economy. So this is a very, very big deal. 
Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, said Enbridge has routinely ignored safety concerns and put the people of Michigan at risk of a catastrophic oil spill. Donald Trump, meanwhile, who has been lazing towards a lackluster autogolpe for the past few weeks, is pushing through drilling auctions in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge and recently fired the leader of the program that creates the National Climate Assessment, likely in favor of a climate skeptic, in what Marianne Lavelle argues for ICN is an 11th hour bid to give climate denial long-term legitimacy. So very quickly, one of my biggest fears is that we don't yet fully know the totality of what Trump has managed to undo, or how much of an impact his disregard for any type of conservation will end up having long-term. But with that said, to the first story, huge kudos to Governor Whitner, Whitmer for taking action before an oil spill. It almost feels like you never hear of that. Uh, but rather, you hear again and again of pipelines that have these long histories of ignoring safety regulations uh, that eventually do cause a huge spill. And everyone's like, oh, that's a huge tragedy. And it's like, no, it's not. It's the government not taking action like Governor Whitmer is doing right here. However, you know, it takes guts to spend political capital to prevent a tragedy like this. And hopefully we can expect, not hopefully, we should expect more leadership of this kind in the future. Uh, but to you, Lauren. I don't have the emotional capacity to comment on what Trump is doing <laughs> with the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. So I'm just going to, I'm going to glaze over that for this week. But, um, but yeah, I've only recently started to hear about uh, Governor Whitner this past summer. And what I have heard really impresses me. From what I understand, she's a politician who um, is, although she's governor, she has a, she's a Democratic governor who has a Republican state Senate to deal with. Um, so she is somewhat limited in the actions she can take in a uh, given her position because um, from what I understand any action she does take kind of has to be at the executive level so it's really fantastic to see that um, she's taking action like this against this Enbridge pipeline and protecting the citizens of not only Michigan but uh, Wisconsin I believe as well um, so that's really fantastic that you are seeing somebody who is in kind of a precarious position some could argue being in a state that is so is so stratified um, politically, as we saw a couple weeks ago. Um, anyway, it's really cool to see her take this kind of action. And then to also hear that she is one of the few governors who's taking a really strong stance um, when it comes to locking down her state to protect her citizens from COVID. Um, yeah, it's just really neat to see. And again, I only just started hearing her name mentioned a couple months ago, unfortunately, in connection with that ridiculous terrorist attempt. But um, I'm sort of curious to see more from this Michigan governor going forward. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm excited to see what else she has up her sleeve because what I've seen so far has been fantastic. Nestled quietly within the 250 pages of Ontario Premier Doug Ford's recent budget is an amendment that gives uh, developers the opportunity to override conservation measures by appealing to the Minister of Natural Resources. It also, it also frees municipal planning from conservation authorities' oversight. Its details are listed in Schedule 6 of the Omnibus Bill 229, and in essence it means that the 36 conservation authorities in Ontario will no longer be able to say no to development they believe is overly harmful to ecosystems. Friend of the show and National Observer reporter Emma McIntosh points out that these conservation authorities were first created in 1946, after, quote, the province found that decades of poor planning had led to drought, deforestation, erosion, and increased flooding. 
She goes on to say that the current system was designed based on lessons learned in the wake of Hurricane Hazel, which struck southern Ontario in 1954, killing 81 people and destroying homes that had been built on floodplains. After the disaster, Ontario put conservation authorities in charge of flood forecasting and making sure development near waterways was done safely. So not only do these changes to the Conservation Authorities Act politicize ecosystem protection and make it more likely that we'll keep destroying them to our peril, they also make it likely that Ontarian infrastructure will become more susceptible to climate change. According to Conservation Ontario Manager Kim Gavin, these changes to the Act are the most extreme yet. In Schedule 8 of the same bill, 229, is a provision to give loggers a permanent exemption from the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, so we covered a bit of Doug Ford's assault on environmental regulation over the summer uh, in our special hour-long interview with Emma that aired in August, and this appears to be a bit of an extension of that, uh, as well as actually making permanent of some policies that were touted as sort of just during COVID, uh, specifically the ones of endangered species. And at this point, I'm not sure if it can be understated just how single-minded Ford's handover of land to developers has been. You know, if there is one driving force behind his decisions, it has been what would give developers more power. And this is and this would be even more obvious if we weren't in the middle of him bungling a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic and his unreasonable hatred of green energy, which, you know, have instead defined the way I think he's been perceived. But time and time again, in the details, it goes back to just how much power he wants developers to have. And it shouldn't be a surprise given how much money they gave him in his election campaign. Uh, but to you, Lauren. We're running out of time, so I'm going to keep my statements brief. Um, and once again, I'm really glad we're on community radio uh, because it means I can say things like Doug Ford can suck it. This guy blows. He's one of the worst things to happen to this province in a really, really, really long time. And we can see that as his sort of tenure as premier goes on, he just continues to get worse. He is pulling out all the stops here. Um, And I'm sick of him and I want him gone. And it means that we need to start organizing for the next provincial election like today because I don't want to see him reelected. The International Energy Agency... Uh, published a report on the 10th of November showing that the renewable electricity sector has seen record growth this year, in spite of the pandemic, even as fossil fuel has somewhat declined, uh, with renewables accounting for almost 90% of all new electricity in 2020. Meanwhile, a survey of 26,000 people in 25 countries, designed in part by The Guardian, has had an overwhelming number of respondents say they plan to drive more after the pandemic. An analysis recently done for the same paper shows how most countries' COVID recovery plans have tended toward uh, precipitating a global environmental catastrophe, opting to prop up fossil fuels and roll back environmental regulations, rather than using COVID as an opportunity to begin creating the green transition we need to save our ecosystems. Yeah, so the piece in there that I want to sort of draw out and expand upon is is that is that last sort of note that David made um, about what we're seeing um, in sort of COVID recovery plans not necessarily being as green as we might have hoped. There was a piece published by The Guardian on Monday, I believe. Um, the headline, if anyone's looking for it, is very catchy. It's revealed COVID recovery plans threaten global climate hopes. Um, and basically, it is an analysis that the 
paper released um, looking at, I think, something like 18 of, of the world's largest economies um, and their pandemic rescue packages and sort of seeing what the um, sort of environmental impact of those would be. And obviously, we're, we're a Canadian show. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be looking at Canada primarily. Um, but sorry, uh, like, like of those 18 countries or um, economies that were um, analyzed only for France, Spain, the UK, and Germany, um, and the EU have packages that will like, quote unquote, like produce a net environmental benefit. Um, everybody else <laughs> is, um, putting forward stimulus that, that even if there is some green contingent of it or, or component of it rather, um, overall has a net negative effect when it comes to, um, sort of environmentally positive policies. Looking at Canada specifically, I can't remember exactly what the number was, but it was just sort of shocking to see it written there. It was something like, I might have these numbers totally wrong, but it was something, it was like 6 billion to, or like 6 million to um, environmental initiatives and like 300 something to, to fossil fuel projects. Um, looking at this like lovely graph they have down for us, it looks like Canada, if you were just to look at the graph on the surface, um, it appears as though our, um, our investment in sort of green energy and fossil fuel resources is even, but, but you can see that unfortunately we're, we're sort of pulled over the middle line of that and, um, and our, the overall effect of our COVID recovery package is detrimental, which isn't surprising based on what we've seen from oil change international and other sort of um, think tanks that have published research on Canada's plan. It, it, so sorry, I was saying it's not surprising, but it is disappointing because there has been so much energy from grassroots communities urging Canada and urging the Trudeau government to support and implement a truly green uh, and just recovery. And it is something it, it, it's, it's a buzzword that we have seen and heard parroted by the government over and over again these last four months. And it was really, really drawn upon during the speech from the throne. So the fact that like when the chips finally fall, when it sort of finally comes time to tally up the numbers, our, our COVID recovery efforts are ultimately having a detrimental effect. Yeah. And that reminds me of the conversation I had really early on in COVID with Julia Levin from Environmental Defense, who was talking about basically the one of the takeaways I took from that conversation was that a lot of the more innocuous sounding recovery efforts, you know, like extending business loans and things like that, uh, really sounded like that they, they were helping they helped everyone you know they didn't sound like they were specifically fossil related and so then so they were able to sort of you know tout the couple green things as their big investments and then the billions of dollars that were in loans or in other things like that sort of just sounded more generic but when you actually tallied up all of the sort of generic support that was coming out of you know export development canada and all these other sort of institutions that amounted to significantly more money going to going to fossil fuel industries then what then the other money that was going other places and and so i think you know it's a it's a, in some ways it's a bias towards what exists now right if you support the industries that exist now in any way you're going to be ending up funneling a bunch of money into fossil fuel industries but that 
has to be planned for. And we can't presume that we're just doing green things because all of the quote unquote new spending, which a lot of it actually was previous spending, you know, in the throne speech itself, Trudeau announced again that they're planting billions of trees. You mentioned that a year ago. It's not a new thing. And, and so I think that to me ends up being really important is that like 90% of all new electricity in 2020 is green, which is obviously amazing, but the fossil fuels are still so entrenched that you, that's not enough. Like you, there has to be effect of winding down things without saying that we're not getting very far. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to, um, to, to clarify those numbers that I, I sort of just threw out quite cavalierly. So looking at it, it's Canada's spending something like $6 billion of its infrastructure funding on, on things like home insulation and green transport and clean energy. But the total rescue package is worth upwards of 300 billion. Um, and, and it contains a lot of measures like massive road expansions and, and of course tax relief for fossil fuel companies. So ultimately the green initiatives are kind of just a drop in the bucket. Um, especially when, when we learn, I think it was just this week, I heard something like the, I, we make fun of the 2 billion trees all the time. Regular listeners will, will sort of be familiar with that. But what I did learn recently was that the 2 billion trees that are being planted are trees that can then be logged. They're, it's not like these beautiful forests are going to be planted and Canada's investing in like long-term growth of healthy biodiverse woodlands. No, they're allowed to be monoculture. They're going to be logged in the future. So how much carbon are they really sequestering? And I heard, and again, this is this was a friend who 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 works in a governmental sector that will remain unnamed. But apparently, apparently there's a certain proposal out there that instead of um, even like having to physically plant the trees in the ground, there is a plan out there to fly overhead and release seedlings from a plane in the hopes that they will eventually hit the ground and, and plant themselves. Um, again, that's that is that is a story that's a rumor i heard but it is a rumor from a somewhat credible source um if it's something that people want us to dig into further i'm more than happy to put on my journalism hat yeah let's 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 dig into the two billion trees we'll have a whole expose I am here with Tim Nash, founder of Good Investing and still reigning champ of most times guesting on this show. Uh, welcome, Tim. Let's, let's run up the score these days. If I'm going to take that title, let's just run it up so that no one will ever be able to surpass me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The, the highest number, you know, like you get a big lead now because, you know, people are gaining. Um, uh, so first question, sort of, you know, again, you're, you're of course, uh, your world is sustainable finance and we do these sort of check-ins to see how that is going. And so how do you, you know, 2020 has been a year of more unreasonableness than you can count. Uh, so how do you see the landscape of sustainable finance, you know, with this ridiculous year? Yeah, it's been such a ridiculous year. I mean, um, really what I would say is that we've been through sort of a six year market cycle over the last six to eight months. That you know, normally when we have a crash, it takes a number of years for us to get back to where we were. And you know, after stocks, the stock market fell about thirty percent in March, and then has jumped back, jumped back almost right away, and has now surpassed where it was at the start of the year. Um, and that it really, it's just been remarkable in the world of sustainable finance. That 
you know, I've been talking for a long time that the tidal wave is coming. This idea of ESG, environmental social governance investing, kind of going mainstream and this coming green transition. You know, how many times have I been on your show? talking about how you know the economy is moving in this direction it'll get there eventually and i'm happy to report this is the year that 2020 really is the year that sustainable investing went mainstream in the us i really think that it's in the us that that has really pushed this forward you know i think back to the start of the year and hearing uh there's a guy a follower named Jim Cramer. He's got a show called Mad Money. And he came on and said, fossil fuels are dead. You know, this is pre-COVID. And this is now to have someone on live TV say that. And then what happened in the wake of COVID is that in this recovery, you know, really whereas in 2008, 2000, 2007, 2008, when I kind of graduated into this, that mess, that economic crash, sustainability really got thrown on the back burner. The idea was like, let's fix the economy and then we'll worry about these social and environmental issues. Whereas this time around, uh, social and environmental sustainability issues have been embedded, baked into our economic recovery. Obviously, this is a health crisis. And so we're hearing so much talk about universal basic income and, you know, really supports for people who, who aren't as better off, who haven't benefited from this, this bounce back in the stock market. And then also, obviously, climate change front and center in all of these conversations about the economic recovery. So happy to report that not only have the sustainable investments outperformed, so all the ESG stuff, what I call the doing less evil, has done a little bit better than everything else, but the green stuff has just taken off. That Tesla flying up the charts, solar uh, ETFs just flying off the charts, that really the green stuff has outperformed so much better and that really the it's undeniable now the performance you know that if you uh, 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 owned a bunch of fossil fuels and no renewable energy you know you're kicking yourself whereas you know had you had the the insight to divest and to, to reinvest in some of these green sectors um, you're doing a lot better than you were at the start of the year that's obviously you know maybe the only good news of the year um, but you said it you mentioned it oh you said in the United States is should I yeah. take that to mean it has not really come to Canada and yeah I mean a little bit in funny little ways it's here but it's certainly not mainstream the way it is in the US that I track the assets under management which is like the amount of flowing money flowing into these funds and in the US it's just soaring like just we're talking like you know year over year doubling in uh, of assets. It's just been massive. Whereas in Canada, these funds are really small. They're not really there. There are a few companies that have done really well, specific companies, these sort of renewable energy utilities here in Canada that have done really, really well this year, have benefited from this, have been, you know, quite awesome. But broadly, you know, when I look at these sustainability funds, I still have a lot of work to do. You know, it's certainly not mainstream the way it is in the US. And unfortunately, you know, in terms of a lot of the media organizations here, it's still viewed as a bit of a niche thing or sort of this kind of like up and coming like what is this I don't fully understand you know lots of confusion around it whereas in the US it's now you know the analysts are baking this in it's now embedded people are really talking about it sort of de facto that this is the way people are investing now and so and so what are you looking for in the future what do you see what do you see what are you looking for or what are you paying attention to in 2021 yeah I mean I think it's just gonna be you know hopefully more of the same 
that really, you know, if we can get through this political risk, you know, we got through the election, but I'm going to wait until the inauguration before I you know, really <laughs> relax at all. Um, you know, but if we can get through that, then that'll be a big boost. And then, you know, really want to see uh, uh, the, the conversation continue to evolve that, you know, talk a lot about this idea of a K-shaped recovery where, you know, a lot of people are better off than they were before, you know, maybe have extra money. They weren't able to go traveling and eat in restaurants. So if you kept your job through COVID, probably have a little more cash laying around. Whereas a lot of people, you know, about a third of our workforce is just in so much worse shape that if you were in the service industry or precarious or, you know, in a lot of debt or week to week, you know, paycheck to paycheck before this, you're in really rough shape right now. So what I want to see in 2021 is like, let's make sure that we don't leave anyone behind in this economic recovery. And then obviously, you know, continued investments in the green economy, that this really is the bright spot. You know, I would say this is the silver lining of the sort of 2020 poop storm is that everything is just, you know, the green stuff has done really, really well that, you know, this idea dichotomy between the environment or the economy, you know, no, it's like clearly that the green economy is the way forward. We are joined today by Michael Polani, uh, who is the climate campaigner at T, uh, which is the Toronto Environmental Alliance. Welcome, Michael. Hi, good to be here. So perhaps we can start uh, just with what your role is uh, with, with T. Sure. As you said, I'm the climate campaigner. And so my role is really uh, to educate, mobilize, inspire uh, residents of Toronto and others to get engaged on climate change issues. We know it's a huge challenge that uh, our city and our country and the world are facing. And so we uh, educate people about what the important moments and opportunities are to influence uh, the city of Toronto in its, in its actions to get them to uh, take stronger climate action to reduce our emissions and, and prepare for the climate shocks that uh, we know are facing us in the future. What's interesting about that de description is I feel like we have been in some ways seeing this moment uh, in regards to you know, COVID-19 as perhaps the greatest opportunity to really reshape our institutions in a way that sort of works towards climate change, but also, you know, better health for people and more just recovery for all. And so the city of Toronto has this Toronto Office of Recovery and Rebuild, which it launched, you know, early on into COVID as a way to discover both how, you know, they, they were sort of in the dealing with it phase and they were like, okay, let's start planning for how we're going to respond and then recover ultimately. And they released a report uh, in October. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of tell us about the office itself and what their mandate was. Sure. This uh, office was formed, yeah, as you say, uh, I think uh, in, uh, it might have been in May, and really focused on developing a plan for recovery and rebuild for the city of Toronto. So even though, as you say, the city was and still is very much in an emergency response mode and trying to dampen the spread of the pandemic and deal with the urgent need for testing and medical support. The city also is, is recognizing that it needs to start now in thinking about how to rebuild the economy, how to forge a, a recovery trajectory that better protects us 
from uh, pandemics like this, but also better protects us from other kinds of shocks that that we know we'll we'll be facing. And climate change is is definitely one of those. So so this office was formed. uh, It started a consultation process. It, It held consultations over the summer. And then the report with its uh, 83 recommendations came out in, in mid-October. Yeah. And so this report came out and it was interesting to me because I feel like there was actually a lot of news around Tor when it started. But the report, I feel like, didn't get the same kind of media attention as I would have imagined, given that theoretically it was you know, describing our future. And so... Maybe you can just give us an update, like what was in this report? Uh, you know, the good for those of us who are cheering for climate action, and then also maybe the not so good. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think people are probably aware that climate activists, environmentalists have been trying to make the case that now is a time, it's an unprecedented time when governments are investing billions of dollars in, in creating jobs, in creating infrastructure, People are talking about it as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to, to make sure that those investments uh, take us in a direction for, people call it a just and green recovery, to build a society that is more equitable and that is uh, on a path to uh, a sustainable future. And so I think that's what we were looking for in the report was a strong message that the way that the city is going to move out of this crisis is one that's going to uh, deal with many of these vulnerabilities and inequities. So we knew that, you know, there was hunger in our city, there's poverty in our city, there's inequity in our city. But I think what the crisis did, what the pandemic did was really brought those serious dysfunctions in these these systems that are supposed to support people to the surface. So in terms of what was in the report, well, as I said, there are 83 recommendations. Environmental groups and community organizations were happy with a number of the recommendations. They were happy that there was a strong emphasis on inequities in the city and, and the need for a much stronger voice of people of color, indigenous people, other equity seeking groups in decision making in the city. So that was that that was the first recommendation in the report. And then there were a number of other recommendations that uh, I think reflected a recognition that this is an opportunity and a time for change. And a number of those were around how we get around the city. So we saw some, I think, significant actions by the city of Toronto during the pandemic to implement uh, 25 kilometers of protected bike lanes and, of course, the east-west bike lane that they've been talking about for decades on Bloor Danforth, uh, they basically put it in in a matter of weeks. So a number of these, the, the report's recommendations, which I think are the strongest to some extent, are uh, relate to transportation, relate to the need to continue to build out cycling infrastructure, pedestrian infrastructure, the need to give more priority to uh, transit, implementing more bus priority lanes, Uh, the need to really think about building, people are talking about 15-minute neighborhoods around the world in Paris and other places. And and there's a nod to that in the report that we really need to build a city um, that is transit-based, that doesn't rely on uh, the automobile, where people can access the services, the goods, the employment opportunities in their neighborhoods. They don't have to try and move two hours across the city to get places. Um, that's not a good quality of life. So uh, good stuff on transportation, good stuff on equity, good stuff on applying a climate lens to 
decisions. Where it falls short, I think it's missing some things. It's missing, you know, the opportunities around renewable energy jobs. It's missing, it's kind of weak on building retrofits as a kind of job creator and uh, important aspect of climate change. Doesn't really talk about urban agriculture, doesn't talk about waste reduction. So it's missing things. But I think the biggest concern that people really had was just that it is this shopping list of 83 recommendations. And uh, it doesn't kind of set clear priorities. It doesn't attach any dollars to implementing these things. It doesn't kind of say, here's what we're going to accomplish in the next year. And all of those things are are concerning. Uh, And we've seen so many times in the city of Toronto great reports, whether it's a poverty reduction strategy or even the the climate strategy, they're pretty solid plans and strategies, but they don't get implemented because the money's not there. And so that's a big concern. So have heard this and they want to get involved, right? They they agree that, you know, these are good plans, but we have to action them. How can folks work towards getting them, getting these things passed and then pushing the government any way they can? It's a really good question. I think there's sort of a general answer and then a more specific answer. I, I just, I feel that it's, this is a, a critical time when in coming months, the city will be uh, really determining its trajectory, not just for 2021, but but beyond. I think it's uh, a really important time for people to be reaching out and nurturing a direct relationship with their city councillors. One of the advantages of local government is is that uh, they are kind of uh, more accessible in some ways than higher levels of government. And so I feel it's really important that in whatever network you have, whether it's a network of friends, whether it's a, a small community group, whether you're part of a faith community, uh, to to try and build a relationship to reach out to your city councillor and to, if you're concerned about climate crisis, as many people are, uh, now is the time to push for a recovery from COVID that puts sustainability and climate action uh, front and center and also puts building a more equitable city front and center. And specifically, I think the next kind of really key opportunity for people to mobilize will be around the city budget uh, process for 2021. The budget will be Uh, released the draft budget in mid-January and then there's a small window of opportunity when everyone has the opportunity and is invited to uh, probably be online this year but people from North York, Scarborough, Etobicoke, downtown they'll have separate um, public discussions and there's a time when it's really important for people to say don't cut services We need to move ahead with these recommendations in the recovery plan. We need to start now and we need to, yes, ask for money from the provincial and federal governments, but we also have to use the powers that the city has to to fund, adequately fund uh, the kind of investments that are really needed at this time. And uh, so those are, we'll be talking more about that. People can certainly go to uh, the Toronto Environmental Alliance website, sign up for updates. Uh, we'll be sharing updates about the budget and ways to get involved uh, in coming weeks and months. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Michael Planey, the climate campaigner at T, and also 
universally right on Twitter. So follow Michael on Twitter because I always enjoy your takes. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, and we'll have you back uh, maybe around budget season. That would be great, Stefan. Thank you so much. 